0: Yes, Lord, we do pray that we would be like you. In fact, that is the goal of the Christian faith, Lord, is that we would reflect your son. God, would you help us to do that tonight? Even when it's hard, even when it looks like what we're going to hear tonight, which is a hard message. God, would you help us to be reminded that despite what may come upon us, that we're not to look like the world. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be a people that are separate. A people that look different, that look like Jesus, that operate like Jesus, that think like Jesus. God, would you please help us to make that a reality in our own hearts and in our own lives by the power of your spirit. We thank you, Father, for your great love by giving us your son and your spirit. Help us to honor you in the way we live each day. And would you help us to hear your word tonight? In Jesus' name and by your spirit's power, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Aaron's new guitar is sounding awesome. Aaron just got this this week. Uh, it's a great guitar. Sounds good, dude. Um, well, like I said, this is not a particularly fun start. I've told you that before, each week it seems like, um, I mean they're martyr stories, they're not ever going to be like fun, but, uh, but this week is kind of particularly sad, I think. Uh, I chose it not because I just want to choose some obscene reality, but because I think it, it relates to the message about what we're going to be talking tonight as we talk about the church at Pergamum, but I will admit it is very sad and it is very sordid. Uh, As always, I've said, this book of comfort, Revelation, which is really what it is. I mean, so many people have treated it like a book of fear for so long that it's meant to scare us. And actually, for the believer, it's always been meant to bring comfort. But again, as I say each week, the only way to find comfort from it is to be reminded of what people's situations actually are like. And for us, we live in such comfortableness. We live in such... uh, relative ease compared to the rest of the world of this day and age, let alone of ages past, (laughs) that we forget uh, what the comfort looks like because we already live comfortably. And I think it's when we look at martyr stories, we see what people have suffered over the centuries for for the Christian message, for Christ himself. Then we can start to understand how this book comforts us. So I'll read tonight, this is again from Fox's Book of Martyrs, a chronicle of martyrs that Fox wrote, uh, John Fox wrote in the 1500s. This is in uh, around 250 AD that this story is taking place. Quintain, governor of Sicily, lusted after a Sicilian lady, Agatha, who was as much known for her piety as her remarkable beauty. When she resisted all of Quintain's advances, he had her placed in the hands of a notorious woman, Aphrodika, who ran a brothel. But that she-devil was unable to turn Agatha to prostitution so that Quintain could satisfy his lust with her. Upon hearing this, Quintain's lust turned to rage, and he called her before him and questioned her. When she confessed that she was a Christian, Quintain had her scourged, torn with sharp hooks, and laid naked upon live coals mixed with broken glass. Agatha bore these tortures with great courage and was carried back to prison where she died from her wounds on the 5th of February, 251. That's a dark story. But it's interesting in the sense that it relates this idea of the lust of the world. And this man who lusted after this woman, in the same way we can become idolatrously lustful for the world. But Agatha, as an example of piety, maintained her purity. (laughs) Maintained her faithfulness till the end, to where it cost her her life. And see, tonight, as we look at the church at Pergamum, we're going to see a church that has really accepted spiritually becoming adulterous. Spiritually, they have lusted after the world. And in fact, they've become like them. And we're going to see an example of that in the letter. Again, this is just a few short verses. This is from verses 12, chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to verse 17. So it's relatively short, but we're going to unpack it and see what this church struggled with, what they dealt with. Here's how it opens up. Uh, Tonight's sermon I've titled, Know Who You Are, or also it could alternatively be titled, Know Whose You Are. Because what tonight's going to be about is identity. Who are you? Because that's what Jesus wants to ask the church at Pergamum. Who they are, and do they know it? Because they have a choice. They can be like the world, or they can be different. And we're going to see that in the Old Testament example it uses. Here's how the letter starts. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp." Two-edged sword says this. Now, we start here. This is Jesus talking about a facet of himself, again, from that Revelation 1 Son of Man vision. Now, that Revelation 1 vision of the Son of Man, I've told you the intro to each letter is pulled from that vision. So here's where we find it in Revelation 1. Revelation 1 verse 16. John sees the Son of Man. It's Jesus. And he sees him in his glorified form. And it says this. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. So this sword imagery, it actually comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah. And this idea is a messianic idea. And what does it make you think of? What does a sword make you think of? Well, it makes you think of war. It makes you think of battle. And specifically, what this relates to Jesus is that he is the judge. And so he says to Pergamum at the outset, to the church at Pergamum, Be aware, <laughs> the judge knows you. The judge knows who you are. I know the condition of your heart. I know who you are. The question is, do you? Here's from Isaiah 49 where that sharp sword imagery comes from. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth Like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. This is a messianic portion of Isaiah. This is talking about the Messiah. Who is to come. And of course that is Jesus. This son of man. And now that he's here. Jesus is claiming as he speaks to the church at Pergamum. I am the one with the sharp sword. In my mouth. Here's how he's. After introducing himself and that facet of himself as judge, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, Pergamum is an interesting city. In this sense, this is a historical background for the city to understand what's going on in this section here. As we talked about when we talked about the church uh, at Smyrna, about the synagogue of Satan. Remember, we talked about that. The Jews were accusing the Christians before the Roman Empire of being not not uh, worshiping Caesar, right? Not worshiping the emperor. And that would inevitably cause problems for Christians because it was part of civic life. It was part of civic duty to offer sacrifices to the emperor as a deity. So what's interesting is now we're again, we're talking about Satan's throne, where he dwells, that imagery. Pergamum was the center of emperor worship in Asia Minor. So particularly this city was the first place in Asia Minor to have a temple built to Caesar Augustus. And so this was literally the imperial cult's home base. This is where the cult had its its greatest, you know, its greatest assets were here in Pergamum. This is where as Jesus says, where Satan's throne dwells. They were a worshipful city. They had temples to pagan gods. They had an altar to Zeus. And in particular, like I said, this was the home base of the imperial cult. So everywhere you look, there is temptation to be like the world. And of course, if this is the home base of the imperial cult, more than anywhere else in Asia Minor, the pressure to offer sacrifices to Caesar would be immense here. To not offer sacrifices you weren't a good citizen you weren't a good, you weren't a good a dweller of Pergamum if you didn't do this. and it was, qu- it was easy and quick to see, just like we read about how quickly government could turn on you. <laughs> They had complete authority. And like I told you, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, the Jews had actually legal protection to worship their God and their God alone. They had received that legal protection from the emperor. But as Christians and Jews differentiated, as they began to see each other as more and more distinct, the Christians were all of a sudden out from under the legal protection that the Jewish people had. And so, of course, it was easy for someone to say, well, look at these Christians. They don't offer sacrifices. And immediately, immediately it could cost them their life. So here he's saying, look, there's even one of my witnesses, my faithful ones, whose life was taken in this very city, Antipas. John obviously knew of this man who had lived, who was a witness and a faithful one here, in Pergamum, and who was killed among them. And he commends them. That's where he wants to start. Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for this. I know how hard it is to live where you live. It is not an easy task. And yet you've held fast my name. You've been faithful. Even in this place where it's so dark, where there's so much evil, so much temptation to be idolatrous, you've held fast my name. And you did not deny having faith in me. You've witnessed. You've been a witness. Antipas' life was taken. But, but I do have a few things against you. So now Jesus wants to rebuke them. He's given them an encouragement, a commendation for what they do well, and he rebukes them here. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to do two things in particular, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Acts of immorality, that Greek word there is pornea, if you want the connotation for what immorality they're talking about. This is fornication, sexual idolatry. So you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is the bulk of the letter. We've already read it. So if you just read that and skim by it, it doesn't seem to mean much. You have to understand the OT reference, the Old Testament reference, to understand what John is saying about what is happening in the church at Pergamum. And Balaam, as as an account, Balaam explains it perfectly, if you know who Balaam is. So Balaam, if you don't know, he's found in the book of Numbers. Essentially, his account goes from chapter 22 of Numbers to chapter 25, thereabouts. Um, I haven't put it all up, but I'll give you a recap of the story, and then I'll show you chapter 25, which is particularly uh, enlightening for us. Remember chapter 22 of Numbers, what happens is the people of Israel have come out of Egypt and they are in the wilderness. They're living wilderness lives. They're waiting these 40 years because they've been told they will not enter the promised land because they've been disobedient until the first generation dies off and the next generation is risen up. And while they're waiting, they get finally to the Jordan. They're across from the Jordan in the land of Moab. And Moab lived in the land across the Jordan from Jericho. And Moab as a people, if you remember their history is that they're essentially cousins to Israel. That's where their bond starts. Moab was one of the sons of Lot. Okay, so you've got this kind of familial, it's it's a ways back, but there is some level of familial bond between the two peoples. But Moab sees this huge number of people on their land and they are Petrified. They're terrified of what they're going to do because they just watched the Israelites slaughter the Amorites, right? Sihon and Og, king of Bashan. They just wiped out those peoples. And so they're afraid they're next. And so Balak, who's talked about here, is the king of Moab. So the king of Moab hires a prophet. And that prophet's name is Balaam. Now, Balaam is from the people of Midian. And so Balaam comes as a prophet, and and Balak sends him and says, hey, I want you to come curse these people for me. And so Balaam says, well, I can't come, because uh, unless the Lord tells me to do something, I won't do it. And it's interesting, because Balaam seems kind of be almost like he's a believer in, in the God of Israel. He keeps talking about the Lord, and of course, then you have this interesting story where finally he agrees to come, and he's on a donkey, and then the angel of the Lord stands in his way, and it almost kills him, but then the donkey protects Balaam, and then the donkey talks, and this is a weird story, which I'm not going to get into the whole story of what's going on there, but that's an interesting piece, right? And, and the Lord says, okay, fine, you can go with them, but you can only say what I, what I tell you to say, nothing else. Only the words that I give to you, Balaam, can you speak. And so when he gets there, they set up these altars on a high place and and they sacrifice to Baal and then Balaam says, okay, let me go hear from the Lord what he has to say. And he comes back and he blesses Israel. Now, Balak has hired him to curse Israel, but the Lord gives him the words and the words are a blessing. And Balak's like, what are you doing? I hired you to curse these people. Why are you blessing them? Balaam says, well, I, I can't do anything other than what the Lord says. And then the next time he does it again, same thing, blessing, not curse. Then he does it a third time at a place called Peor. He blesses them and does not curse them. And then he kind of goes away. And it kind of seems like, wow, well, this guy must be kind of a righteous guy. He talks about the Lord all the time. He receives blessings for Israel. He must be a good guy. But the account continues And it explains what type of person Balaam is. So we're now in chapter 25 of Numbers. When Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Now in this instance, play the harlot, what does that mean? It's talking about spiritual idolatry, right? This is spiritual fornication. This is not necessarily, it actually does imply that there's probably some physical fornication as well, right? They're actually probably having intercourse, they're intermarrying, but beyond that, what's more important, at least significantly for this moment, is that they are spiritually having intercourse with other gods, and that's the language God uses to talk about idolatry. He uses it as an adulterous relationship. That's the language God continuously uses throughout the Old Testament. So here it says this. They began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people, this is the people of Israel, to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They feasted in the presence of their gods and they bowed down to them. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. Okay, let's continue. So the Lord said to Moses, Lord's angry about spiritual adultery. So he says this, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fiercest anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Imagine the brazenness. Moses has just said, we need to kill the leaders of these people, the people who are fornicating against the Lord. And this man brings a woman into his camp while they're weeping before the place where they meet God. When they're trying to repent of their idolatry, and he brazenly brings them in. But when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced Both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Now Phineas. Sounds odd to our pacifist ears. Phineas is a hero. Of Israel. Because he was zealous for the Lord. He was zealous to do right before the Lord. And to purge the idolatry from among the nation. That's how he's viewed in Jewish writings. So Moses, uh, let me come back. So that's what Phineas does. Now again, what's this all have to do with Balaam? This seems odd. He just seemed like a good guy who walked away. The story continues. You get a census of the people in Numbers uh, in 26. And then from there, you kind of have these laws. But it goes back to the narrative in Numbers 31. And here's how Numbers 31 starts. They go out and they wage war against the Midianites because the Lord wants to have revenge against them for what they did in tricking the people into worshiping other gods and deceiving them. And so they go out and they slaughter all the men, and this is what happens. They come back and it says this. And Moses said to them, "Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. Now, again, this heavy. That's a heavy judgment. But what it says is that it is Balaam here in, ver- in chapter 31, verse 16, that it was Balaam who counseled the Midianites and the Moabites on how to trick Israel into worshiping foreign gods. It was his counsel that led them to do it. So this man who just seemed to be kind of a prophet and spoke to the Lord was actually a betrayer. He was a sinful man, he was an evil man, and he actually did not honor the Lord at all, but instead worked to deceive the people to worship other gods. Right? This is not just some, some guy who's, who's doing good for the people. Even when he pronounces blessing. The Lord is really, it seems like he's overruling him to pronounce blessing. And especially in light of this, you see that his heart, the quintessential story of Balaam is that for greed, for money, for riches, he was willing to betray the people of God. And that's how it's interpreted throughout history, right? The Jewish people have interpreted it that way. So when you come back here, hearing that story from Numbers, you have to ask, why is it saying you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel? It's because they have people in their church that are telling them it's okay to participate in idolatrous, uh, an idolatrous reality in the city of Pergamum. To do what? To eat feasts before their idols and to engage in sexual immorality related to worship of pagan gods which is exactly what Balaam did it was a normal part of worship of foreign gods of pagan gods to have some level of sexual intercourse involved in their worship that was normal in Israel that was still normal in Greek in the Greek days and still in the Roman days here This is a normal reality and that's what he's saying. He's saying you have people in your church that are telling you it's okay to compromise with the world. It's okay to be like them. Listen, it's okay to eat the feast and to fornicate. It's not like you really believe in those gods, you're just acting it out. That was a danger to the church community because they were becoming just like the world. They didn't look any different. They were the same. You couldn't tell any difference between the Christian and the non-Christian because they had people teaching them that this was okay. Remember when we talked about Ephesus, they maintained their internal purity And yet, they had forgotten that God was among them. This is a different situation. These people have not maintained purity amongst themselves. They have chosen to follow teaching that says it's okay to engage in things of the world that are heinous to God. That to eat food and to feast before an idol is heinous that to fornicate and and use that as part of worship of a pagan god is heinous to the Lord. And unfortunately, even though this exact example may not apply because it's pretty rare for us to have pagan temples we go to and eat feasts among their idols, the reality is we're constantly bombarded by choices about becoming like the world, about compromising, about it's okay to do this even though you believe in Jesus because it's not like you really, you know, think this is okay. It's just part of what you do to get along. You know, go along to get along. Jesus is saying that's horrible. This is despicable. And of course, the last line, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitan, uh, Nica. Laon really means to overcome the people, which is interestingly, basically the same meaning as Balaam, as a name, Balaam, he who consumes the people. So whatever the case, these two groups, they may not be identical, but they're teaching the same thing. Be like the world. He's saying you've got all these people in the church who are openly aligning with the world over Jesus. So he's saying, repent, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, remember, we just read some of the judgments related to this account. They are heavy judgments. What does repent mean in this situation? It means Stop following their teaching and cleanse the impurity from among you. Now, in this instance, I don't think that means kill those people. But it does mean remove the impurity from among you. And if they refuse to stop teaching that reality, kick them out of the church. They should not be a part of your community. And if you don't repent, I am coming to make war with the sword of my mouth. That's, that's a death threat. <laughs> that's a battle threat. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to have the Lord of the universe fight against you as if in war? That's his threat. Repent, or this will happen. And interestingly enough, in Numbers, again, later on, what happens to Balaam? They made war against Midian. This is the Israelites. They made war against Midian just as the Lord had commanded and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Ivi and Rakim and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam the son of Beor with the sword. He received his due judgment. Now, Here's the final verse. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, this is, seems kind of cryptic, doesn't it? This is the reward part. So if you don't repent, you can expect I'm coming to do battle with you, with the sword of my mouth. But if you do, what you have in overcoming is some of the hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name written on the stone. Okay, here's what's interesting. Numbers seven, uh, excuse me, numbers 11. Well, let me tell you this first. Interestingly, he's maintaining the imagery of the wilderness, isn't he? Because that's where the manna came. Just like the Balaam story is a wilderness story, Jesus says in the same vein, you too can taste of the hidden manna, the manna that came down from heaven. You can taste of it and eat it. This is heavenly food is what it's referred to. You see the contrast? (laughs) You can be part of the feast of the world, eating food sacrificed to idols, or if you relinquish that, if you walk away from that, you can have some of the hidden manna, the heavenly food. A feast beyond compare. And I will give them a white stone. Interestingly, white stone has a lot of different different imagery tied up in it. It's one of those things that John is using and he's pulling all these threads together. One, it kind of relates to the manna. In Numbers eleven, verse seven, it says, The manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of delium. Delium is a white kind of stone resin. Interestingly, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word there is crustalo. It's a crystal. right? A rock-like crystal, white, just like crystals are. A white stone. Interestingly, it relates to that. But also in culturally, this stone that they talk about here was used. In several interesting ways. One, we've seen kind of the theme of judgment running through this letter. A white stone and a black stone were actually used to pass judicial voting. (laughs) A black stone stood for guilt and a white stone stood for innocence. That's probably, if we relate to the judgment imagery, that's probably another indication of what Jesus is saying. The white stone is a vote of innocence you will receive not the guilt of the black stone, but the innocence of the white stone. But I would say even more interesting is that a white stone was often used in in that day as an invitation. It was your get-in invitation to a feast. They would often use them as something that you would receive and, and you would show it you know, kind of at the door like to get in the club, right? You're, this is how you get in. If you don't have the white stone, you're not a part of it. If you can show the white stone, you get into the feast. Which of course with this imagery of manna, imagery of the food sacrificed to idols, feasting imagery is running through this letter. Before I get to the new name, I want to tell you something about this white stone as it relates to the feasting imagery. It's going to appear in Revelation again. I hate to jump too far forward, but I want you to recognize that these letters, once we've gone through them, you know, people separate the letters from the, the much more uh, hard to interpret visionary section of Revelation. But actually the themes and the ideas of the letters show up throughout the book, and this is one of those moments. Because what's going on here, and I think it gives us the best picture of the choice you have, is that what's actually going on to the church at Pergamum is you're welcome to join one of two feasts. Now in this letter, right here, this short letter to the church at Pergamum, it's just Here's the two feasts. You can feast on the hidden manna. You can get the white stone of invitation or you can feast on the food sacrificed to idols and commit idolatry, commit immorality. Those are the two options in the present. You can taste of this spiritual food or you can choose to worship idols. But what's interesting is Revelation 19 says that based on what you choose in this life, you're also going to attend another supper. And you don't have a choice. You're gonna be in one of these two suppers, and they both happen in Revelation 19. You get one or the other. And so for those who overcome, they're gonna be part of one feast in Revelation 19. But for those who do not repent... For those who remain following the teaching of Balaam, they are going to have an altogether different feast. Here it is, Revelation 19. And you'll hear the imagery from just the few verses we've talked about. You're going to hear these imagery uh, of this this letter come up throughout here. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me. Right blessed are those who are invited. To the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me these are true words of God. Now. Now if you get the white stone if you get the new name if you get the hidden manna you're part of this supper this is for the faithful this is for the overcomer this is for the one who remains righteous to the end this same imagery shows up of of, of being pure clothed in white in fine linen clean and that is the righteous acts of the saints this is the righteous dressed and prepared to meet their bridegroom. But there's another supper. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. This is Jesus. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of god the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords and then i saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven Come, assemble for the great supper of God. And what are those birds going to eat? Very next verse, the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the unrighteous and all those who have not repented will be eaten at the great supper of God by the birds for they lay dead and wasted. Now, those two suppers are very different, but that's the level of judgment we're talking about. I mean, you can see all the imagery in it, the white, the purity, the sharp sword, the name on which no one knows. All of that language from this letter in chapter two shows up again here. So, if you're at the church in Pergamon and you read that letter, that little piece for you, and then you read this, hopefully it would spurn you to be like, I don't want to be on that supper. (laughs) I want to be in the first one. It's a warning because God is gracious. And that's one thing we forget the imagery is dark, it's very dark. Is very heavy. But God is gracious enough to offer a warning. Because this is not the end He desires for people. This is an end unto which they choose themselves. His hope, His goal is that they would repent. Stop being like the world, stop compromising your faith. Be faithful, just like Antipas, who died among you. Be like him. Give up your life. It's better to give up this earthly, temporary life and be faithful than to spend an eternity in this kind of condition. Your flesh being picked clean by the birds. It's an obvious choice. Jesus is trying to make it obvious. Which one of these sounds better? Better. But it has, to, it has to be based on you overcoming. And the only way to overcome is to not give up your faith and be like the world. That's what he's saying to the church at Pergamum. They have to repent of their compromising with the world. They've got to change how they live. Okay. Okay. And a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. You know, I love names. I talk about names all the time because they're meaningful. They're powerful because name is something in the scriptures. That's true. Generally for anyone, you know, any human with a name that is means something And in this instance particularly, in the Bible particularly, it has a specific meaning. Because name is identity. Why do you think there's all these accounts, particularly in Genesis, of renaming people? It's because God is giving them something new. He's changing who they are. Jacob, the deceiver, becomes he who wrestles with God, Israel right? The name change is a new identity of who they are. And that's what this is, too. God's saying, I'm going to give you a new identity. If you can overcome, there's a new identity waiting for you. It's not going to even be one where you are held in by the world any longer, where you even have the, the chance to compromise because all of the evil will be gone, and in light of everything we just read, I think that identity, this is, this is speculative, I get it, but I think that new name, what it's referring to, that new identity, is what we just read. The new name is that you are the bride in a way that you can't even comprehend now when you're among the world. Right now, yes, we're, we're the bride, that's true but it hasn't been consummated. It's like we're a betrothed, almost. We have God, we have his presence, we have the spirit resting among us. We know that Jesus is for us. But the the wedding feast hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that. And what Jesus says is if you can overcome, you're gonna be part of the feast. You're gonna have the invite because you're gonna be the bride. Whatever extent you believe you're part of the church or feel like part of the church or feel like the bride now, when it's all said and done, the the reality of who we are is going to outstrip anything we could possibly fathom in this life. Because we will truly be united to Jesus Perfectly. That's why they use that imagery in Revelation 19. Like a bride and her bridegroom. What's the Bible say a bride and bridegroom are like when they're married? One flesh. Let man not separate what God has joined together. We will be one in a way we can't fathom right now with Jesus, as a bride with her husband. Now that is something that makes it worth not compromising. Like John said, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because you are the bride. If you make it there, you're the bride. Dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. And even now, here's what we forget, even now we're supposed to be making ourselves ready for that day. Even now, we're supposed to be preparing our hearts and our minds and our bodies to be prepared to receive our our coming husband, Jesus. This is not saying you're supposed to do that at the end of time. You gotta start it now. You gotta make yourself ready so that we can clothe ourselves in fine linen and, and receive him when he comes. So at the end as I close tonight like I said you got to know who you are you've got to know that you are the bride already yes that is coming and it will be greater than anything we can even dream up right now but we are fundamentally already that bride We know whose we are. We are Christ's as a bride waiting for her husband. We are Christ's. And if we know that, if we can know who we are, if we can know whose we are, it should protect us, it should comfort us, it should keep us from compromising with what the world wants us to become. Because we don't want to be like the sons of Israel with Balaam committing adultery on our husband. We don't want to be like those people fornicating and, and committing spiritual adultery because we love our spouse. And we're waiting for him. That's the essence of the letter to Pergamum. If you're waiting for this, if you're waiting, if you're focused on the reward, the hidden manna, the white stone, the new name and new identity, if you're waiting for that, you'll realize it's not worth it to compromise with the world. So church, I say to you tonight, exactly what Revelation 2, 12 to 17 says. Know whose you are and live in accordance with it and be warned that to not do so is a heavy judgment. Jesus says so. But if you can overcome, the marriage supper of the Lamb awaits you. you will be part of the bride. You will receive all the inheritance, all the reward that comes with being Christ's bride. That is something worth waiting for and not giving yourself away impurely to the world.